and welcome to Teach With Your Hands, the podcast where we bring you the confidence, connections, and business understanding you need to teach the crafts you love. I'm Amy Costello. Hey everybody and welcome to the show. My guest today is an award-winning studio potter and sculptor and he's been at it for 40 years. He's been a teacher for more than 30 of those years, including being a lecturer at several universities in the US, New Zealand, and Malaysia, and teaching workshops in the US, Canada, China, India, and Japan. He's the co-author of Simon Leach's Pottery Handbook, and he's written many articles for magazines like Studio Potter, Ceramics Monthly, and Ceramics Art and Perception. He's currently the head of ceramics at Peters Valley Craft School in New Jersey. Bruce Stainert, welcome to the show. Thanks, Amy, I'm happy to be here. So let's start by hearing a little bit about yourself and some of the teachers who've had the most influence on your life in ceramics or otherwise. I guess in terms of teachers would be, I would start with my parents. In the late 50s, early 60s, they learned how to make pots. They became pretty serious ceramists on the side of their professions. So I have four brothers and sisters, and I was the only one of the kids who took a uh, liking to working in clay. And once it came time to going to university, I never really thought about majoring in pottery. It, it, it wasn't something that I really had ever considered. I grew up really wanting to be a writer and uh, specifically playwright. And so I went to school for that. And as part of that program, we had to take, you know, classes in the arts and humanities and so forth. And we could repeat classes. So I started taking class with Rudy Audio, and I think probably Rudy has to be one of the more influential on me because he was kind of the first introduction I had to an artist who was so serious about what they did and was able to articulate what being a maker means or can mean to a person's life and to their happiness. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I remember about him most is that he would set up a sculpture stand in the middle of the classroom, which was potter's wheels, and we'd come into uh, class each day, and he would be out in the middle of the room making one of his uh, large vessels and would work simultaneously with us. So if we had questions and so forth, he'd he'd come on over to the wheel and work with us. And uh, if we were all just concentrating on what we were doing, he'd go back to working out in the middle of the room. And it was really kind of an amazing relationship there that he had with us. The other thing he did was that he brought in people from the outside. He brought in artists um, who were friends or colleagues from somewhere else in the country who might be passing through Missoula. And so we got introduced to a lot of really interesting people. Um, Rudy kind of ran with a very alternative thinking crowd. It was really interesting uh, being one of his students. And then another teacher who I consider a mentor was Susan Peterson. I went to work for her down at um, Idlewild School of Music and the Arts, which is outside of Los Angeles, back in the early 80s. And I worked as an assistant to her. And um, though it was that kind of a professional relationship, she she really was a, a teacher. I consider her to have had that kind of relationship with me more than say, for example, being my boss. And she was a, a super strong woman and very, very opinionated. She was one of the few top of the heap 
women in the field at the time. And so then there weren't very many of them. And she really took her place very seriously in terms of opening the field up to women. And she was quite the, the role model for me. And then in graduate school, you know, I had these terrific professors at, at Alfred University. Every single one of them had such an, uh, an impact on me for different reasons. That was uh, Wayne Higby, Ann Courier, Andrea Gill, John Gill, Val Cushing, and Tony Hepburn. I uh, worked mostly with Tony uh, and also did some assisting with him during some of his exhibitions. So I had the, the really rare opportunity to work side by side with him. He was an extremely articulate human being, extremely articulate. He was one of the most serious artists I had ever met at that point. What does that mean to you? What is a serious artist? Oh, I would say a serious artist is a person who uh, is completely immersed in what they do and thinks a great deal about what they do. They aren't just making by rote. They have serious inquiry about each piece. So as they make each piece, they're asking questions about that piece and considering ways to respond to that and to build on that. Uh, another thing would be the way that they conduct their business and the way that they give weight to those things that they think about and to the meaning of art. That's a serious artist. Like, what does being an artist in society mean? What does our work say about the time? What does it say about us? That's a serious artist, somebody who understands context. And Tony was one of those people. And he really demanded of students that we do those things and that we record those things, that we do research into our work. And that was the first time I had really come across that concept. The other thing that the faculty did for me there is that they, coming from a writing perspective, you're making uh, fairly large change-ups with each piece that you write, whether it's a poem or it's a play or, you know, a short story, that you aren't so encouraged to stay with a similar character or stay within a style necessarily or whatever and that you be branching out as much as possible and trying to make each piece different from the next in a more in a more obvious sort of way whereas in American ceramics education there's more of an emphasis on working within a style while you do that, make very small change-ups between the pieces so that you create a body of work in which there's this thread that goes throughout it. Mm -hmm. For me, I had a really difficult time doing that. I, at the point at which I started at Alfred with Tony, I would be all over the place. I mean, I think that I thought like a writer then, and I still do. So it was like breaking a, a young colt, you know, coming <laughs> And Alfred, you know, they, they, really, uh, <laughs> they really gave me a bad time about that. That's something I learned from Tony is how to do that. And it's not like I practice that still, but I had to practice it while I was a grad student at Alfred. And it created a real discipline. You know, I had to, I had to think so differently than, than what I was used to. And I think that that's part of their approach there. They, they want to kind of break you of your habits. And my habit definitely was to 
make sculptures that each one was really different. It was a different story. It was a different poem, you know, and he really got me to focus down and, you know, make those smaller changes. And by doing so, I think my skills grew really fast. And I really got to figure out what it was that I wanted to say with a body of work. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was really different. Yeah, different for me. So which direction do you take your students now? It depends on where I'm teaching. So if I teach at a, say, if I do a faculty uh, replacement for a faculty member that has gone on sabbatical Mm -hmm. and it's an American university, I find that that approach is the one that they still use to this day. And so I do what is asked of me. And I don't go into a program and try to throw a wrench in the works. Yeah. I think that I'm mature enough as a professional teacher to understand that each school has its own approach and so forth. But with my students at the local junior college where I teach, I teach the way that Bruce Daynert thinks because that's where my passion is and that's where I'm at as a maker. I'm I'm schizophrenic, meaning that I have lots of different tributaries from my practice as an artist. I, I make pots for a living. I make sculpture. I draw. I still write to this day. So I'm, I think I'm most comfortable in that realm. So in my classroom at the local junior college, I'm, I'm pretty much all over the place. We explore a lot of different things. Each week is different. Part of that is it is a junior college, so it's more of a foundations level education. I don't have juniors and seniors who are starting to really focus on a certain way of working. The students that I have are in the early stages of their careers. And so I want to open up as much of the world to each of them as I possibly can, because I feel or believe that somewhere along the line, they're really, if I do that, that they're really going to locate themselves and locate artists who think like them and, you know, find their find their niche. So that's, this kind of reminds me of a quote from a Zen monk that says, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. How do you feel about that? <laughs> Jeez. Um, I don't know what the context to that quote was. So I, I would hate to hold that again. <laughs> <laughs> but for the sake of our conversation, I will. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not of that school. I, yeah, I'm not of that school at all. I, I, I understand where they're coming from, where I think they might be coming from, but um, I don't think I could be more different. I, that would never come out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it turns out that in the context of meditation, because this quote is from a Zen monk, it's actually... Oh, Okay. Yeah, it's actually the beginner's mind, not an expert's mind, which is better. So when you sit down to meditate for the first time, you don't have any expectations about how it's going to go. You're, you know, you're new to this, you're experiencing everything for the first time. So you have a beginner's mind. But once you've been meditating for a while, you kind of get used to it and you expect this time to be like last time because you've gotten into a routine and you stop experiencing things in terms of possibilities and more in terms of like the rote of doing it over and over. So you kind of stop progressing. So learning how to go into every meditation session as though it's your first one 
and learning how to always be seeing things with new eyes and seeing all the possibilities becomes really valuable. Mm, okay. So knowing that, now how do you feel about the quote as it might relate to ceramics? I think that as artists age and along with that comes more and more experiences, you know, like almost a layering, mm -hmm. but each layer of experience intertwines with the previous layer or layers. It would seem to me the choices become greater, mm -hmm. become exponentially greater, almost like a Fibonacci series. I kind of see it as like the seashell where each successive ring gets larger, like with a tree, you know, the rings in a tree. Yeah, I think that because our art making is, is an expression of our universe and our own personal worlds and our own personal takes on that universe, I think that probably the more experiences we have uh, makes the choice, the menu, I guess, is, is how I would think about it, the menu of choices for what to make, how to make. Uh, when to make, uh, what to make with, and so forth, uh, that much greater. So do you, think, do you think that there's a way we can encourage students who aren't beginners anymore to um, see ceramics with the beginner's mind again and to start seeing things like they're seeing them for the first time? That's such a, oh, that's an amazing question. Um, I think that might be, that, ooh, I hate to say that anything is impossible. That sounds so dogmatic or something, but that's really an interesting challenge, I think, for a teacher. I've seen it done quite a number of times where teachers introduce into the classroom almost games that like children would play, for example, and let's all make parts to a teapot, you know, like spouts and handles and lids and, and so forth. And then let's put them together in groups mm -hmm. and put them together almost like you would play Legos. I mean, the language, the language even becomes the language that a teacher would use when dealing with children. So I've seen attempts at that. And I think that to some degree, it has to be possible. It just has to be possible. But I think it's a very difficult challenge to do that because the erasure of experience and awareness is difficult, I think, for people. Even artists individually in their own studios, every once in a while I'll hear that said by an artist that they try to get back to what it was like to be a child again in the studio and somebody without a great deal of experience. How successful they are at it, I'm not really I'm not really sure. I know that in my own practice I try to set up situations where I'm more free to play. And some of that has to do with going into the art making without the expectation of keeping something. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And if a teacher can get students to give up the expectation of having a product or a thing come from a, an effort. I think there's more of a chance of that happening, but I'm not really sure if we really can get back into the beginner's mind 
And I think that I probably seeing beginner's mind a little more rigidly than what maybe you had in mind. I don't know. Yeah. Um, you're talking about how as you experience more things, you become like there are more possibilities of what you could do with that experience. Do you think that everyone is aware of that? Or do some people, as they experience more things, see that as a more things that they shouldn't do instead of more things that they could do? <laughs> uh, I think that that happens in ceramics quite a bit because in ceramics, of course, we have the, most of the time, we have the element of heat. And no matter how many times we fire kilns, uh, whether they're electric kilns or gas kilns or wood kilns or what have you, there are always going to be problems along the way because heat is something that's so difficult to control. And so with ceramics, there's always something new coming along to discover. And sometimes that new thing is actually the new experience of failure. <laughs> the new experience of failure at something you hadn't failed before at a certain part of it, say within a glaze formula or within the timing of firing, you know. Yeah, ceramics is kind of crazy that way because it even depends on how you load kilns as to what glazes are going to turn out like, you know, if you lay, load a kiln really tight or if you load it loose. There are different kinds of facets to the ceramics field that are really kind of different than uh, most of the other art forms. And so there's chance built into, there's a lot of risk built into the ceramics medium we run into situations that throw the unexpected at us quite often. So, so you're saying that as a ceramist, you kind of have having new experiences all the time built in, like it's kind of hard to be a rote ceramist because there's always going to be something different going on every time you fire up the kiln. Exactly. Yep. All right. Yep. That's very interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so is that the beginner's mind from a, a Buddhism perspective? I'm not really sure. Yeah, I but don't know. There might be some kind of relationship there. In my opinion, if you're going to be successful as a ceramist, it's incumbent upon the artist to learn how to go with the flow, at least to a certain degree. Yeah. Because we don't have complete control over a large, a significant part of the art form. This is very interesting to me because in woodworking, you have precise control, you know, over what is going to come out the other end of the table saw. Yeah. So if you take that heat, the application of heat to a piece as a phase, you know, to a certain degree, all bets are off as we get closer to that, that part of the process, different fuel sources in a kiln make a big difference there. So if it's an electric kiln, you have more predictability than you do with, say, a wood kiln. And, and that in itself is interesting because you see different personalities be attracted to the different kinds of firings. Um, so people who use electric kilns... <laughs> a very general sort of way, have a different group psychology or personality than the people who uh, do wood firing. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting from a teaching perspective when you think about that question. 
it's difficult in a classroom to have the students be going off on all different kinds of directions. Like, you know, these students are interested in the results that they can get with an electric kiln, and this group is interested in the results they can get with a gas kiln. And that is a really big challenge in ceramics education where you want students to achieve as much as they can and find that sweet spot for personal expression. But at the early stages of the game, you have to kind of limit that end game, that heat mm-hmm. a little bit, kind of getting the lessons learned. So that, I think, is really an interesting challenge that ceramic educators face, you know, constantly. You know, once a student is a late junior or in their senior year, by then, most have settled on a way of firing their work and a certain aesthetic that comes out of that. But up until that point, you're really exploring as much about firing as you possibly can because it's in that firing that the final expression is realized. Do you have only one way that you fire your stuff? No, I, I, but I'm, I think that I'm, I'm somewhat unique that way. Um, and it goes back to our earlier conversation when I was, I think I mentioned that the faculty at Alfred kind of saw me as a schizophrenic, you know, yeah. because, you know, like I said, I'm all over the place. Everything from decaling and gold luster and silver luster firing to onagama, really, you know, juicy, chaotic uh, wood firing. I think about what the idea is that I want to get across, and then I start to choose materials and firing methodologies to apply conceptually to the work that I'm doing, whether it's in functional tableware or whether it's in the sculpture. That's interesting. I know some people feel like having a lot of restraints helps you be creative, but you seem like the kind of person who maybe dislikes restraints, or maybe you're just good at putting them on yourself differently every time at the beginning. Yeah, and I think that it probably takes an artist like me a little bit longer to achieve a high-level piece, work, or a body of works because of that. I can see the advantages of welcoming restraint and working within that. I'm not skeptical of that or cynical of that at all. It's just not the way that my my artistic spirit is comfortable with. That's maybe because I don't like to get uh, trapped in a box. You know, yeah. <laughs> I don't like to get cornered. I I want to keep all of my options open as much as I possibly can. You know, maybe I'm afraid of commitment. I don't know, <laughs> but but um, I think that I am a little bit different that way. When I was, it's interesting, when I was at Alfred, there was an artist by the name of William Perry. Everybody called him Bill. And he had taught at Alfred for quite a long time, but had retired by the time I got there. And I didn't know his work very well. And he gave a retrospective exhibition my first year there. And he was one of those artists who is or was all over the place. And his exhibition was mind-blowing, the range of work that he did. And you would look around the room and go from piece to piece. And the effect was, in a lot of cases, are you serious? Did this guy really make this piece? Because that's so different than... And I remember a lot of the reaction to his work by the students and so forth was that it was just 
pure chaos, you know, that, that um, yeah, there was, there was quite a bit of criticism about it. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, this is just fantastic. I, yeah. just, <laughs> I loved it because there was so much to look at in my mind in the exhibition. You know, each piece was so different from the next. And, um, yeah, it caused a lot of conversation in the studios and in the uh, seminar the graduate seminar, we talked about that. And that was kind of early in the game. And his show kind of introduced to me that notion of focus and that conversation around keeping a focus when you're making. Yeah, it's very interesting. So I was noticing that you were qualifying what you were saying by saying that it was true in American universities. So I know you have experience teaching in New Zealand and Malaysia and teaching workshops around the world. How is it different teaching internationally? The school that I taught at in New Zealand, one of the differences there is with the curriculum. It was a school of art, so the students did only art all day. So every class that they were in was arts-based. They don't use the general studies approach. So it's, it's pretty similar to American, except that in American universities, not in American art schools like RISD or uh, Chicago Art Institute or whatever, they have, to, they have to take these general classes that then lead towards a focusing. In New Zealand, they're you know, primarily geared right from the get-go on the art. Do you prefer one over the other or maybe find one more valuable than the other? I, you know, it's interesting. I do. I, I find the there's something about the American approach to arts education that I think is more useful in the longer term. You know, when we're artists, we're responding to these ideas of the world and these observations of the world that we live in, whether those are, you know, an emotional-based place that we're coming from or whether they're a science-based place, you know. Uh, making sculptures that respond to botany, to talk about life and transformation, that kind of thing. And so I, I think that having to take general studies and learning more about this planet and learning more about the universe and learning more about our emotional lives by taking psychology classes and having to take foreign language and that kind of thing, those are, those are the concepts. Those classes represent the concepts that we bring to our art. So to just go into a art program where we're really focused on just making and thinking along some narrow lines, geez, I, yeah, I'm not, and, and I'm not entirely comfortable with that criticism because it's, I'm, I know I'm oversimplifying it for the sake of our conversation, but there's something about having to take coursework about other disciplines and other fields that I think helps an artist, whether they're young or old, be able to bring into their work some knowledge of what else there is. And, and you never know. It's funny, you take a botany class and you, you see things that you may not have ever seen before or thought about before. And the next thing you know, you're using some aspect of that image from a book or from monitor on a computer to actually extend out into a three-dimensional construct, you know, in the studio. Yeah. So if you're in a situation where your students aren't taking general classes, do you intentionally try and expose them to things outside of ceramics? 
Yes, absolutely. And that becomes a far greater priority to do that. You know, I do that if I'm not in that situation, just by course of requiring research for their work. But in New Zealand, for example, where they were just in an art school, I made that a a real big part of my curriculum. Absolutely. So I read an interview with you where you said that teaching kind of came by accident. Can you explain that? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I think... Um, Well, I had opened up a production pottery in Wyoming. I started my career as a potter, as a production potter in Georgia. And and at that point, I had started to get to know Susan Peterson and had been going to L.A. to assist her in the summer times and then back to my production pottery in Wyoming from September through May each year. And I did that for a number of years. And she knew that I hadn't spent much time out on the East Coast and definitely not in New York City. And she called me on a cold December morning and said, hey, one of my professors isn't coming back next semester, and I'm looking for somebody to come and teach for a semester. And I thought maybe that's something you'd like to do, you know, get out of Wyoming for the winter and come experience the big city. And I, you know, because I was able to do that, um, I jumped onto it and closed my pottery down for the winter and went out to New York. So that was my first experience of teaching at college level. This was before I had my MFA. I just fell in love with teaching, and, and I fell in love with New York City. Um, and I, I think that teaching university students and teaching at a university like Hunter College that is so diverse, and the students come from so many different backgrounds, racially and culturally and economically, is just such a dynamic place. And it threw it threw up all kinds of challenges as a teacher. Like what? Well, I guess for one, for being from Wyoming, coming into New York and teaching at Hunter College, you're teaching kids who come from all over the world and they come from all areas of the city and they come from backgrounds that I had no connection to, you know, these large city uh, neighborhoods slash ghettos and so forth. And different ways of thinking and behaving. So, you know, the Wyomingites, we tend to be a little on the quieter side and live and let live side. And New Yorkers are (laughs) super dynamic and they have to live their private lives out in public, you know, because of the density of population and the way cities and city life work. So they just let it all hang out. And that was, that was really different for me. And the students were, they were wonderful. I mean, they were, they were into trying anything, you know, I <laughs> come up with projects and, and, you know, they wouldn't look, look twice at me about it. They just, yeah, off we go. You know? <laughs> and so they really fit my, my personality super well. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I never did move back. Really. I never did move back to Wyoming. <laughs> no. So how did you get the job at Peters Valley? Oh, well, we were, my wife and I were teaching at University of Malaysia on the island of Borneo. And while we were there, the economic collapse of Southeast Asia happened. Mm. And one of the things that University of Malaysia did was they announced that Americans, our contracts would be fulfilled from their perspective. But at the end of our contracts, we would all have to leave because there was a political element to all of this. And Mm. So I started looking around for jobs and so forth. And 
I so loved being an assistant at Idle Wild School of Music and the Arts back in the 80s. And I remembered that experience. And when I saw that Peters Valley's job opened up, I really loved the idea of working within an educational context running a program by which I bring in instructors, teachers from all over the country and the world, have new students each week. So you have an extremely dynamic, extremely fast-moving, intense kind of environment. And then from September through May, be in my studio and have to earn my living as an artist. And I really missed that during the years I was teaching. So as soon as I saw that job open, I applied for it. It fits my way of thinking and and working more than being a full-time teacher. Being a full-time teacher is not not where I want it to be in my life. I want to get back to my studio. Yeah. Yeah. So does Peters Valley do all workshops? Yeah, it's mostly a workshop center. So starting in middle May and going through the middle of September, during the winter time, I put together a program by which we rent out our wood kilns and our soda kilns, the atmospherics, because we're kind of part of the New York area. And so atmospheric kilns, it's nearly impossible to build something like that within the city. Yeah. And so there are a lot of groups, community studios that are in the city or near the city that come out and they rent our kilns and I fire with them and, and so forth. So that part of the program is in the winter time. And I usually do a wood firing about every month and soda firing with different groups and so forth. Cool. Um, can you maybe compare what it's like teaching at Peters Valley versus a university? Yeah, with a university, the students are having to fulfill uh, requirements of a curriculum. They are getting assessed they're getting a grade. And at Peters Valley, the students aren't getting assessed. They aren't taking it for a grade. They're taking it to learn specific techniques, new techniques. So it's a really different ball game. And at Peters Valley, the range of abilities goes all the way from rank beginners all the way through to professionals. So there's a far broader range of abilities in a workshop center. We have a big university scholarship program, so we do have university students in almost every workshop, which is really fantastic for the instructors as well as their fellow students, because university students bring a certain a way of thinking to what they're doing. Generally speaking, they bring a youthful energy into a workshop, but then the workshops also have semi-professional or serious amateurs or professionals. So. It's really an interesting mix. Is there anything that's really challenging about teaching at Peters Valley? Yeah, I think that whenever a teacher comes into a a workshop environment, they have to get their ideas out really quickly. There's not a lot of time for development of ideas in the students or in the instructors. They have to hit the ground running. There has to be a super high level of organization on the part of the teacher. The timeline for teaching a workshop is compressed. Yeah, I would say that would be the big difference. Say, for example, teaching a semester-long class, you have that time in which people can develop their ideas. And in a workshop situation, there isn't that uh, luxury of doing that. You really have to 
be on to it very quickly and, and get it out there. And then I think development and evolution of idea come later uh, for the students and, and for the instructors too. And by the end of a workshop, I think students, instructors are pretty exhausted. I mean, it, it's physically and mentally pretty demanding. As a staff member in organizing that, uh, working with my assistants, I always have two assistants. It's the same, you know, and we, we have these students and instructors who come in on Fridays and are with us until Tuesday afternoon. And then Wednesdays, we, we sleep in and, and get up and start the process all over again where we're welcoming the instructors and students for the next workshop, you know. So it's four months of really high intensity for us. What advice do you give to people who are coming to teach at Peters Valley for the first time or doing their first workshop? The advice that I would, I, you know, a couple of things that kind of relate to what I, I was just talking about, and that is, number one, come with a game plan. Have a fairly good idea of where you want to start and where you might want to end. Come with a daily plan. Come with a plan that allows for some time within the workshop for students to sit down and try the things that you've just uh, shared with them, that you've demonstrated, that you've talked about, and then be ready to throw it all out the window. <laughs> be ready to abandon ship and be ready for things to, to go off on a different tangent and a different tributary and go into some area that you had no idea that you would be going off into. Because coming into a studio that isn't your own, uh, coming into uh, a group of students and a group of fellow instructors who you share a house with at night, um, that you sit around and you drink a beer and you get into these conversations and one thing leads to another and the blacksmith is saying, hey, why don't you come on over, bring the students over tomorrow morning and let's pound some steel and <laughs> see where that leads with the clay you know you so so while you think you might have some control over what you're doing you might feel compunction to you know follow your bliss on something else and and I think that the best workshops are those that take all of those other things into consideration and and I think that those things relate to our our practice as artists you know, having an open mind to to being influenced and being inspired by God knows what, you know, letting the stuff roll and prepare your students for that possibility. You know, I, I think that that's what I would advise. Have you ever had a class go a totally different direction than you thought it was going to like that? Absolutely. And sometimes it goes so beautifully. Sometimes everybody's on board, man. They're all in this lifeboat. And they're all working together. They know they have to in order to survive it. And that's as good as it gets, you know. It's really beautiful. And other times, you've got one guy on the lifeboat. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little uncomfortable, you know. Yeah. And they're going to make life in that lifeboat pretty miserable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, they're out of their element. Students are out of their element here. And, and um a lot of personalities, when they're out of their element, get anxious, and that that kind of eventuality can happen. And 
I wish everybody could just, you know, go with the flow, but that's not how personalities work. Do you have any specific examples of classes? Yeah. So, well, coming up this summer, we have, we have a uh, potter, Shiro Otani from Shigaraki, Japan. He's one of the most prominent uh, potters in Japan. This kiln is called a Nobori Gama. And uh, Nobori means climbing and Gama means kiln. So it's a climbing kiln. It goes up a little hill. And uh, he's going to come and teach a workshop in that. So it's a, it's a pretty intense process but because things happen to happen very quickly. The, the firing itself takes about 30 hours. So it takes up a pretty major part of the, the length of the workshop. So his workshop is going to be a cultural experience for the students. You know, it's not going to be just techniques. He's, um, I mean, every workshop is a cultural experience, but, but what I mean by that is that what he has to offer is to have some kind of a glimpse into the way that a Japanese potter who came up through the apprenticeship system in Japan has to offer. So it's a cultural experience as well as a technical experience. I read somewhere that you're currently working on the biography of Takeshi Yasuda. Yeah. Um, do you consider uh-huh. that kind of work informing people about the lives of great artists? Do you consider that a form of craft education? You bet. Yeah, definitely. So, And it's a different angle, of course, than other aspects of how I work as a teacher. The other book that I've written was on Simon Leach, and it's an introduction to uh, ceramic. And it's very pictorial and is meant to be able to be opened up in front of a potter's wheel and students are able to refer to that, to look at it while they're making. I think, you know, I think that it's a really well done book because Abrams, the publisher, was interested in really getting into the photographic part of it. Whereas with Takashi's book... I see it more as a biography and not necessarily as pictorial, but uh, it's certainly going to have that. I consider Takashi one of the world's greatest living potters. He has a beautiful mind. He sees the world of making pots through such an interesting lens, and that lens has something to do with seeing the obvious or experiencing the obvious, but not not being as aware of it as one might be, you know? And Takashi has this uncanny ability to, to take what we all take for granted and see it with, with different eyes and is able to articulate it in such a beautiful way. And his ideas about living and working and so forth are just very interesting to me. So uh, getting back to your question, it allows for me to explore with this other person a way of looking at what we do as professional artists very, very differently. And that has something to do with bringing our personal worlds into it, mm-hmm. thinking about those things and sharing those things and so forth. So I think that that has a really important place in crafts education. And it has an important place, I think, in art in general and, I don't know, in, in society. Yeah. How has your writing influenced the way that you think about teaching and vice versa? Oh, that, Amy, that's such a good question. 
I think that I think that because I have a writer's mind, I pay attention to things because I might need them. What does that mean? Uh, I I think I pay attention to what students are doing, what my fellow faculty are doing. I think I pay attention to relationships within studios between people, between people and their materials, between people and their techniques and so forth. And I think about how I might present those things in the context of the written word. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm, I'm constantly, my brain is constantly there. Um, it's almost like, it's almost like watching an experiment happen, you know, like, like I'm some kind of scientist or something. And, and, <laughs> you know, so I'm, <laughs> watching all these interactions, thinking about later using them in say, even like a poem, you know, because in studios, they're microcosms of society in classrooms people are relating to each other on far more intimate levels than they think they are. Mm -hmm. And they're bringing to bear all of the, all of the nuances and all of the, all of the not so nuanced behaviors <laughs> and opinions and, and so forth about their worlds and so forth. And, and so I think about those things. I really pick up on them and, and note and note them, you know, keep track of them. I think that's what writers do. And so teaching is just this other activity that is very much worth paying attention to because teaching is a microcosm of, of greater society. That's fascinating. Yeah, and I think that sometimes the students kind of pick up on that fact and are a little bit like, he's paying a little too close of attention <laughs> to what we're, what we're doing and yeah. How do you define success in one of your classes? Number one, work. So, and what I mean by that is not just the art that one makes or the objects or the drawings or whatever. There's that. But the other thing is work because I really believe strongly in the more work that we do, as long as we're asking questions about the work that we're doing, we are going to succeed. You know, I don't know how many times you've heard this said that, oh, gosh, I'm, I'm not an artist. Oh, um, yeah. You know, I hear that all the time, but I don't believe that. I think that a person, if they work hard enough and they make enough work and that as they make their work, they're asking, you know, just asking simple questions about what they've just made. If it was green instead of this blue. If that handle was longer than that one, if that line became a little more bold along the way, you know, and, and so now I'm going to try it in the second piece. Now I'm going to try it in the third piece. And they're asking these questions and they're rebelling against what they've done before. They are going to be successful. You know, I'm a musician. I play piano. I play keyboards. And I still play my scales. I still practice my scales and becoming successful has something to do with practicing your scales. And I say scales in quotation marks, whatever a scale might be, that would definitely be uh, number one. 
Yeah. Number two, to be successful, I think that teachers need to be open-minded. I think they need to allow for students' freedom to explore. A helicopter teacher, helicopter mother, father, end up with a student or a child who feels as though they have to look elsewhere for their idea of what is successful or what their idea of appropriate is or, or whatever. And I think that all it does is create a dependence in artists and dependence in kids and so forth. And I think that if teachers not just allow for, but encourage free exploration and free expression and so forth, you're going to get a young artist or whatever who is well on the way to being successful. What that involves is it involves allowing that freedom, but also making sure that students know that they can come back to me and ask me questions and tap into what I I might have to offer them. Right. And then off they go again. Yeah. I, I would say that that's a big part of my teaching approach. How have you seen students changing over the 30 years that you've been teaching? Gosh, I'm not sure that I, I'm not sure that I have, you know, when you get into a conversation with fellow teachers, one of the things that I hear a lot is students aren't as engaged with their work that need more guidance, that there's more of this helicopter kind of thing happening. Mm. But to tell you the truth, I'm really not sure about that. You know, another thing that goes back to your previous question that I think that relates to this question is passion. And I think that if I'm passionate about what I'm doing in the studio, and if I'm passionate about what I'm doing in the teaching studio, I think that students pick up on that, and I just, you know, I'm an artist, and I, I couldn't be anything but that, so I live, you know, I live on this edge of being horrified by the thought of, of not being able to be an artist, so I'm always <laughs> in a case of panic. Um, from the time I open my eyes in the morning to when I go to bed at night, I'm, I'm in this state of anxiety of not being able to be an artist. And so I think I bring that to my teaching. So students, I think, pick up on the fact that this guy is like, he's really pretty, pretty <laughs> serious about what he's doing, you know? And yeah. he's really passionate about it. It's him, you know, this is him being an artist and being Bruce are not very different things. They're kind of this one thing. And I think that that gets communicated. And I want them to be passionate about what they do. And uh, so I can't even remember what the heck your question was. Oh, 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 how have students changed over the years? I think that, you know, the big thing, of course, is the Internet and cell phones. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say, man, I just love I just love being in a classroom and going, oh, hey, have you ever heard of Tony Hepburn? And they'll go, no. And I'll say, everybody get on your phones. And they pulled Tony up. I don't have to prepare a slideshow with these old slides. <laughs> I don't have, yeah. you know, we can go to an explanation or an illustration of what I'm thinking about with a particular student. I can customize my answer to a particular student so easily in this digital age. So I don't have to generalize it for everybody. So yeah. I'm able to actually approach my teaching more individualistic, I think because of cell phones. So 
I'm into it, man. I just totally appreciate the cell phone thing. Now, that's, yeah. not, to that, that's not to say that I like when students are sitting there on Facebook during class. Yeah, time, of but, course, of course. Um, but I would say that there's a change there in that we're able to access the world instantaneously. And so the students understand that they're technologically so astute compared to my generation. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Teaching is so interesting right now. It's crazy. So I know you were talking earlier about how being exposed to things outside of ceramics is really important. Do you feel like students are more able to do that in the modern age, or is technology kind of a, a hindrance where people get stuck in thinking about things the same way that they have? I think the thing about students is that they, you know, textbooks when kids were growing up in my generation, we had our textbooks. And that textbook was the same for all of us. Even across the country to a certain degree, these standard textbooks. And now with digital technology and the internet, we all have different textbooks. Every student that comes to my class is coming with a slightly different textbook. And I say that um, kind of metaphorically or Mm -hmm. you know, kind of uh, the symbol of a textbook. So each kid is coming with their own world, and that world is in their pocket, you know, in their hand. So while they, yes, they've had their textbooks in school, those textbooks have really changed over time, and the cell phone and the computer are a huge addition to that, magnificent addition to that. So each student actually has been able to, starting in kindergarten, go off at three o'clock in the afternoon when they leave school, go off into their own world vis-a-vis -vis these uh, digital devices. And so teaching for me has become this thing where it's incumbent upon me and it's really kind of a fun challenge for me to figure out, okay, what's this kid's textbook? And to the students out there listening to me, I apologize for calling you kids, but you know. <laughs> uh, but you know what I mean? Part of the challenge is to go, okay, so Nicole, what is her textbook? What has she been really getting into? And where has that taken her? And how can I use that to help her, you know, navigate what it's going to take for her to become a successful artist? What do you think all of this says about the future of ceramics? Well, uh, that's, that's, that's really interesting because when I was growing up, it was the era of the brown pot. <laughs> <laughs> and especially in universities and so forth, we looked primarily at brown pots or the pop art movement from California. And everything else was kind of forsaken. If you put a decal, if you're interested in putting decals on a pot, good luck finding somebody who could teach you how to do that. And <laughs> it just wasn't done. Now, when I look at, uh, I was just at the national conference last week in Minneapolis and going to different shows and so forth. And I'm pretty aware of what's going on out there in the field because of my job at Peters Valley. And I'll tell you, there is no more exciting time in American ceramics or even world ceramics than the time that we're living in right now. It blows my mind how vast the expression is. 
it's just fantastic seeing what young potters are doing and what faculty are encouraging students to do. Installation art has never been more interesting. Ceramics is starting to gain a, an acceptance in and a foothold in the art world. The modernists are all dying, thank <laughs> God. And, you know, getting out of our way because ceramics is a medium. It's just a medium. It's not necessarily a way of thinking. And the time that we're living in, sculptors and painters and installation artists and filmmakers and everybody's starting to be able to utilize ceramics in their expression, in, in the ways in which they want to talk about their world. And so the possibilities are really endless. And all of those barriers that the modernists put up against ceramics and, and other mediums, you know, they're just finally falling away and we're able to get on with the job of being artists. It's a great time for young, young artists, I think. That's wonderful. And I think that's a pretty good place to end our interview, too. Okay, and I apologize to the dead modernists out there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so why don't you tell me where people can learn from you? Where? Well, let's see. I, I teach a, a class every semester for Sussex County Community College in Newton, New Jersey. Okay. And I teach workshops at different, you know, craft centers and so forth. All right. And uh, next year I'll be giving a workshop in Japan in Sasayama. Do you have that schedule like on your website or something? No, but I'm going to get it on there here pretty quick. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Yeah. What's your website? Oh, my, my, actually, I don't have a website. I have a blog. So oh. it's, it's, yeah, brucedanerblogspot.com. Okay. Are there any other links or anything like that you want to add? Well, you could go to ceramics at petersvalley.org. Okay. Or petersvalley.org. Okay. Yeah, I welcome, I welcome anybody out there uh, who's listening to, to do that and to come visit us here at Peters Valley. Sounds great. Well, thanks for being on my show, Bruce. Thank you very much, Amy. Thanks for inviting me to be part of it. Hey guys, thank you so much for your support during our launch week a couple weeks ago. I've gotten so many supportive messages from people who've liked the show so far. If you like the show and you want to support it, honestly, the best thing you can do this week is open up whatever app you're using to listen to the show and give it a heart or a thumbs up or a like. If you're on iTunes, leave us a review, that kind of stuff. You can share it with your friends on Facebook and Instagram. We are at TWYH Podcast in both of those places. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. Teach With Your Hands is produced by Amy Costello. The music is Admin by Poddington Bear. Hear more at soundofpicture.com. Oh, mommy. Yeah.